0: Good afternoon. Welcome to the Land Use and Economic Development uh, Committee of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. I'm Scott Weiner, the chairman of the committee. To my left is Supervisor Malia Cohen. Our committee vice chair, uh, Supervisor Jane Kim, will be joining us shortly. Our clerk is Andrea Osberry, And I yeah. want to thank uh, SFGTV for broadcasting today's hearing, uh, specifically Jonathan Gomwalk and Jesse Larson. Uh, Madam Clerk, are there any announcements?
1: Yes, please silence all, all electronic devices. Completed speaker cards and copies of any documents to be included in part of the file should be submitted to the Clerk. Items acted upon today will appear on November 18, 2014. The Board of Supervisors agenda, unless otherwise stated.
0: Thank you. Uh, please call item number one.
1: Item number one is an ordinance amending the administrative code to provide a street light policy.
0: Uh, thank you, and uh, I'm the lead author of item number one. Uh, and I want to thank Supervisor Cohen as well as Supervisor Breed for co-sponsoring uh, this item. Uh, and this is uh, legislation uh, to uh, reform and improve uh, San Francisco's approach to streetlights, uh, and to make sure that we are uh, that we have a, uh, a, a high-quality streetlight system that works for all users, including pedestrians and that's consistent with our better streets plan. Uh, Street lights and the level of lighting on our streets and sidewalks have a direct impact on the lives of everyone in the city. Uh, They enhance public safety and neighborhood quality of life uh, and they support nighttime activities. Unfortunately, our street light system is failing. San Francisco's existing street lights are old. They were installed in an era when our streets were envisioned more or less as freeways and they have uh, tens of millions of dollars of deferred maintenance. Uh, My office and I'm sure every other office at the board of supervisors frequently receives calls and emails from constituents concerned over a lack of lighting in a particular area or a street light that's been burned out for an excessive period of time or that keeps going out even after being fixed. Uh, A Well maintained street light system is key for the safety of our neighborhoods. But unfortunately, we do not have a proactive program in place to modernize or upgrade our streetlight system. Uh, one of the challenges for the public is uh, even knowing which agency owns and is responsible for a particular streetlight, whether it's the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission or PG&E. Currently, about sixty percent of our streetlights are maintained by the PUC, and about forty percent by PG&E. Uh, over the last three years, I've held two oversight hearings on streetlights, which are the genesis of the legislation before us today, and one of the main issues we identified was inconsistent maintenance practices between the PUC and PG&E and the challenges that our residents often have uh, in trying to figure out who to call when a light needs service. Indeed, we've even seen challenges uh, within the city in terms of knowing whether a streetlight Uh, is the PUC's responsibility, or or pg and es and sometimes it's taken time just to work that out. Uh, Last year, as an example, a street light on Guerrero Street in my district uh, fell over into the middle of the street. Luckily, no one was injured. Uh, When the SFPUC investigated the rest of the corridor from (coughs) Market Street to Cesar Chavez, the agency found that all of the poles were so heavily corroded that they were all in imminent danger of falling over. Fortunately, those poles were all replaced, but frankly, it never should have gotten to that point. Uh, Unfortunately, when those lights were, in fact, uh, replaced, uh, they were replaced without making them uh, uh, pedestrian grade so that they would light sidewalks, uh, not just streets, and they were not replaced with LED technology. Uh, This is an example of a major missed opportunity. We should be upgrading to LED to save energy and to increase lighting levels and we should be providing pedestrian level lighting and not just focus on, on lighting streets. We're a walking city but we don't acknowledge this when it comes to streetlights. The city's response to streetlight issues has been piecemeal and reactive. Uh, we have not allocated the necessary resources to think longer term about how do we bring this system into a state of good repair and into the 21st century. Earlier this year, I worked closely with the Mayor's Office and the Public Utilities Commission to identify $9 million in new funds to help deal with some of the deferred maintenance issues for the PUC's streetlights. Before then, the PUC had budgeted less than $400,000 per year for citywide uh, maintenance needs of uh, more than 20,000 streetlights. I want to thank the Mayor and the PUC for their commitment to at least begin us on a path to resolving uh, this important issue. Today's legislation will create a policy framework for how the city approaches its streetlight system. It is a vision and a framework that we can all work within when making budget decisions and other decisions about design. The legislation, the legislation clearly sets forth the official policy of the city and county of San Francisco regarding streetlights, including uh, making it official city policy that there will be one municipally uh, owned and managed streetlight program moving away from having P- the PG&E have 40% of the lights and making the PUC the sole owner of the entire streetlight system. As we've heard in previous hearings, uh, uh, PG&E, uh, and they've said this publicly, do not appear to object to that long-term transition. Uh, it will make it a c- official city policy um, to include pedestrian-level lighting, Uh, whenever there is a a need uh, to do so, and that we will no longer be reinstalling and replacing lights uh, that only focus on lighting streets and not sidewalks. It will make it city policy to upgrade all street lights to LED lighting. Um, It will make it city policy to have a a clear and consistent time frame for responding to maintenance issues, specifically uh, that they be resolved uh, within uh, 48 uh, hours And there are additional items in the legislation around improving the 311 system and uh, GIS coding uh, and so forth. Uh, this legislation is long overdue uh, but of course this legislation is one step. Uh, we need to make sure that we are adequately funding this system, that we are dealing with its deferred maintenance and that we have uh, street in San Francisco uh, that are up to the task in terms of making our city safe, having a great quality of life. Uh, and being uh, part of the modern era. Um, so with that, um, uh, Supervisor Cohen, if there are no opening comments, um, I'll call up Barbara Hale from the PUC um, to make some opening remarks.
2: Thank you, Supervisor Weiner. Barbara Hale, Assistant General Manager for Power at the SFPUC. <clears throat> Excuse me. I do have a brief presentation to go through today, so if I could have the slides, please. Uh, Similar to other presentations I've made uh, as you've uh, been investigating the streetlight issues in San Francisco, Supervisor, I'll be talking about ownership, our service and performance goals, and um, what our uh, maintenance and capital improvement plans are. As you already mentioned, streetlight ownership is quite diverse here in San Francisco. The 40-60 split you mentioned um, is reflected here. Uh, but there's also other owners uh, between the state, state agencies, federal agencies, and city departments. That ownership broken out by district is uh, sh- sh- shown here on this slide, with San Francisco's ownership being uh, reflected in the shades of blue and green, uh, and PG&E's ownership in uh, excuse me blue and gray, and PG&E's ownership in the in the green colors. Uh, the, with the darker blue areas, two, three, five, and districts 2, 3, 5, and 6, being where uh, about 95% of the ownership of the lighting is San Francisco's, and in particular the PUC's. Uh, with the change in daylight savings, we um, were... Supervisor it-
3: Excuse me. Excuse me, I just have a question. Maybe you can just bring me back um, historically. How did we have the city's um, light ownership split between uh, the PUC and a a utility company? How did that, how do we get to where we are today? So it's it's really just history and the way the environment was built out. Um,
2: The San Francisco PUC didn't exist when some of the lighting was originally installed uh, in downtown San Francisco. In fact, some of the lighting when it was originally installed was gas lamp lighting and it was PG&E's predecessor company that owned those lights. When they were converted to electricity, PG&E continued to own them. Uh, Other lights are located on PG&E's wood poles, uh, and those uh, wood poles hold a number of utility companies' um, assets. Uh, and historically, the streetlights that are attached to PG&E's wood poles have been owned by PG&E. Mm-hmm. So it's really sort of how the city evolved
3: and grew. And so over time, um, I think the PUC has acquired more of, of PG&E's assets just just. Just naturally through yes,
2: and in, in part because of the undergrounding program, as um, as the utilities that used to be above ground mounted on poles were converted to underground services, um, the streetlight service is then assumed by the city and by the by the PUC in particular. So, in neighborhoods where the utility um, facilities you know, uh telecommunications and um electricity are underground, those lights are oftentimes owned by the city because when
3: undergrounding occurred, we assumed ownership of them. Thank you. And can you uh refresh my memory as well as listeners' memory? When what parts of the city have the undergrounding um has, has the technology underground the wires? Um
2: so largely in districts two, three, five, six, uh parts of nine you know, District 10, your district, is primarily above ground still right. and wood, palm, wood pole mounted utilities. And although there are, there are
3: above ground facilities throughout the city. So not now, but at a later date, I'd love to have the conversation with you because mm-hmm. there's a growing desire to get uh, power underground um, within, within District 10. Yes. Please continue with your presentation. Thank you. Thank you.
2: With uh, daylight savings ending, uh, we'll see folks' uh, awareness of streetlights and uh, their s- their sense of safety on the streets. Um, you know that awareness will be um, greater. We typically receive more calls about streetlight outages at, uh, with the turn of the calendar and the ch- and the change in the daylight savings. Um, it's I just take a moment to refresh. Folks's recollection on what to do when you want to report a streetlight outage. Residents may dial 311 and the uh, 311 uh, staff manage a tracking system and convey the information to both ourselves at the SFPUC and to PG&E. We also have a PUC developed streetlight app that's um, accessible through Android or iPhone devices. Uh, when you're standing there on the street and notice a, a street light that's flickering or, or not operating at all, uh, the smartphone will GIS locate where you are, and you can easily send a note in through the, the Streetlights SF app. You can download the app from an app store or from the PUC's website. It's available either way. Uh, and that gets to what do we do with that information. Well, for s- the streetlights that we own, We have performance goals that are uh, displayed here on this slide. If it's a a simple pole knockdown or um, a burnt-out light, you can see that within 24 to 48 hours, we've made conditions safe and um, corrected the flickering or or burnt-out lamp. Uh, to the extent the repairs needed are more extensive, uh, you know, a pole being complete, not completely knocked down, wires exposed. That can take more time, uh, but our goal is to restore service within that 48 hours for, for simple, um, uh, simple repairs. We were successful in this last cycle um, at the California PUC arguing for service levels to be imposed on PG&E with respect to streetlights. PG&E went to the California PUC and, and asked for uh, an increase in the amount of revenue they get for operating and maintaining the streetlights they own. The, um, the uh, California PUC granted that request. We said that we felt it was important to have service performance levels associated with those payments, and the California PUC agreed. So PG&E is now required to produce a formal written perform, pre, formal written performance goals. Uh, the goals that they have proposed are not as um, strong or as rapid for um, simple outages as the CPUC excuse me as the SFPUC has imposed on ourselves, but we are very happy that they now have performance goals that their regulator has said they will be held to. Uh, and we will be able to uh, request reports from them on an annual basis to know how they are doing. We won't have to wait for that three-year California PUC general rate case cycle to find out what's going on with um, streetlight performance.
0: Ms. House, just um, backing up, uh, so even though PG&E owns 40% of the uh, streetlights, the PUC actually pays PG&E to maintain Those street lights, is that right?
2: That's correct. Under the um, regulatory structure that PG&E operates in, the California PUC has a tariff for that cities like ours pay for PG&E's operation and maintenance of the street lights. The one for San Francisco is specific only to San Francisco, and that tariff is just for the physical maintenance of the physical asset. We provide San Francisco provides the electricity for the lights.
0: For pg lights?
2: Correct, for the lights that we operate as well as for the lights that PG&E right. operates. But when
0: PG&E goes out to maintain or to repair, to take care of the system, uh, it then uh, charges the PUC to be reimbursed for that work?
2: It worked, we're charged a monthly fee per light. Right. Um, it, they don't have to touch a light to charge us. Uh, and so they receive payments for us on a monthly basis to fund their operation and maintenance,
0: including their overhead, correct, right? Yes, and, and that's and why profit. you know one of the and their profit um, for their shareholders, and and one of the um, benefits of uh, there are various benefits of moving ownership of the entire of PG&E's lights over to the PUC. Uh, which again, PG&E, uh, you know, in various conversations, public and otherwise, does not uh, doesn't object uh, to this. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, there would have to be a negotiation around the, the purchase price, uh, but ultimately, not only would uh, it be much more seamless in terms of understanding who is responsible for a given light, and we can move past this sort of uh, uh, confusion about is this a PUC light, is it a PG&E light, um, is you know. We, we can move past that, uh, but also it would seem to be more efficient uh, because the PUC will no longer have to be subsidizing PG&E's overhead and profits around the streetlights. So, all right, you can go on.
2: Thank you. So um, now to move to our um, capital plans. Uh, one of the more challenging areas uh, for both us and PG&E are the um, streetlight systems that are quite old. They are... Um, operated in a series. They're referred to as series loops. They work like the old holiday lights. When one light burned out, the whole string is no longer good. That's the same situation with some of the streetlights in San Francisco. We have eight series loops that um, the city owns. It's 339 streetlights in particular. We now have funding to convert those series loops into a more um, modern uh, circuitry. And to convert them to led pg series loops conversion has also been funded through their last general rate case, and um, with our urging in that general rate case, uh, the CPUC is requiring pg and e to track the spending and to to um, keep the the project on the projects on on track and um, you know the good work. Uh, that that the SFPUC together with city attorney did at the CPUC on these issues um, really goes to the good work of Jonathan Cherry, Michael Hyams from the SFPUC, and um, Austin Yang from the city attorney's office. So I just want to give them a little shout out. Uh, This map here shows you where the particular series loops are and who owns them. So you can see they're sort of sprinkled throughout the city and most of them are owned by pg and We have the eight that are currently being designed and, and improved. And, Supervisor Weiner, in your opening remarks, you talked a little bit about how streetlights are funded. And, Supervisor Cohen, you, you mentioned you know, how, sort of how come there's such a hodgepodge. Um, you know, when improvements are undertaken on a larger scale on city blocks, you know, perhaps a whole uh, block is being reconstructed, the buildings as well as the streetscape. The project proponents are responsible for improving the streetlights and bringing them up to up to code. In those circumstances, so for example, Octavia Boulevard, Mission Bay, Hunters Point, those systems are all uh, Hunters Point Shipyard. Rather, those systems were all are all part of that that project, and they are being funded by the project proponent. And then they're turned over, they're inspected by the city and turned over to to the city for um, ongoing operation and maintenance and ownership. We also have um, funding for streetlight capital improvements included in the SFPUC's budget. And that's what you see here. Uh, We went from a repair and replacement budget of about uh, $300,000 in repair and improvements. In 2013-14, uh, to now having over two million just on those those line items. So when you get a 311 call, uh, those are the funds we tap to take care of those situations. Then we have an additional over the next uh, two budget years, um, 23 almost 24 million dollars to spend on broader capital improvements including things like the series loops I just talked about, where we're going into the street and really digging up the old circuits and putting in new ones, um, including new poles, new lamps, new, 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 complete new systems. And so we have uh, really a much larger uh, set of funds available to us. Those funds don't come from taxpayers. Those funds come from the ratepayers who pay us for their electricity service that they receive from us.
0: Supervisor Kahn.
3: I don't know if this makes me a nerd, but I love this stuff. This is so wonderful. I literally have emails in my inbox right now from a guy who lives over in Hester Street um, in Visitation Valley, looking for, um, wanting to know what exactly is the process. Um, Hester is. we, we can talk in more, a little bit more in detail, but it's in Visitation Valley mm-hmm. near, the, um, near the freeway, near the 280, uh, the 101 going south. And um, the question is, how do, you, how, do you, how do you get new street lights um, where an area where, which is dark? Not to jump the gun, but on your next page, you talk about funding priorities. And priority number one is high crime rate due to poor lighting. And certainly representing the southeastern part of the city, mm-hmm. the, I recognize that if I had better lighting, certainly smash-and-grab or car break-ins or would would be severely decreased. So maybe at some point in your presentation you could talk about, um, and the reason why I'm bringing this comment up is this, the other street and pedestrian improvement, uh, $23 million that, you, mm-hmm. that you've talked mm-hmm. about, that you have budgeted, rightfully so. You and I have worked on um, projects, lighting projects, and we've made a significant improvement, um, I think it was last year, but i still have a demand for needing more more lights mm-hmm. particularly paying attention to those that are in the formerly industrial parts of the city mm-hmm. that are now part of this new rebirth and this transformation where you have people living where they where there were businesses um before and so there might there might have been a, a less of a demand for lighting uh so now that we are here in 2014 and going on and looking forward the process maybe you could detail like how could one engage I know that I can go to a three one one application, the app, and say this light is not working. Right. This needs to be fixed. But here's how do I identify a spot that is already dark that there is that infrastructure doesn't exist. Right. How do we start that process?
2: So certainly, um, uh, using three one one is for, for that is also encouraged. Um, uh, we take calls directly ourselves. I know that supervisors do as well. Um, among residents who have concerns about the, the lack of street lights entirely mm-hmm. um, in, in San Francisco. And, and yes, oftentimes it's areas that uh, used to be light industrial that have now sort of converted over. They've been rezoned, converted over. Uh, residents are, are where businesses used to be and they're there in the evenings and, and concerned about um, the level of lighting. We've been talking with planning on some of those sorts of circumstances where we can better coordinate PUC, planning, DPW, to um, to make sure that as um, projects are approved, uh, to the extent they they reach planning's level of attention, mm-hmm. um, that lighting element is included. Um, really catching it at that point
3: it would be ideal. Um, so before the entitlement so as it go- as, before we get to the entitlement process before the planning commission votes on a project,
2: right. Okay. Right, and looking looking at making sure we have the right levers as a city in place to make sure that as, as the development happens, it includes the appropriate level of street and pedestrian lighting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, there are situations where it's already built, you've got folks contacting you. Yeah. Um, once we know that there is a need, we put it on our, our list. We look for other city projects that are going to be happening in the area. Um, you know one of the biggest expenses for uh, uh, putting in street lighting is the trenching associated with it, um, and so we like to try to piggyback on other projects that are are planned in the area um, not only to um, to leverage the the work um, and keep the cost down but also to keep the inconvenience down among um, the residents and businesses there so um, Together with that, you know, sort of looking for the sweet spot where you've got uh, funding as a priority because, as you see on the, the slide, you know, safety is a concern. Um, and uh, work is going to be underway in that area in a year or so. We can include it in our capital plans and do perform the engineering work and have the, um, the project funded in our 10-year in our capital plan. Um, at this point, the 10-year capital plan at the at the 23, almost 24 million dollar level uh, for the for these next two years includes projects like that where we um, we know that improvements are needed, uh, and we've included them in the in the funding plan. Uh, in the outer years of the 10-year capital plan, um, we we have uh, ongoing funding to do assessments and to perform improvements. And so we'll, we'll be going through a backlog of folks like the resident that contacted you, identifying areas where it's needed, uh, and, and making those improvements. Great. Thank you. So for the slide, then, on um, funding priorities that we just alluded to, uh, you can see here these are the same funding priorities that we've had at the last two um, streetlight hearings that Supervi- Supervisor Weiner called. Uh, so seven priorities with you know crime, accidents, and um, cost uh, high costs of maintenance being the top the top three reasons to uh, focus dollars in those areas. We're also now um, more actively engaged in pedestrian lighting planning and implementation. Uh, we participated in the Better Streets Plan, and um, uh, that uh, that Supervisor Wiener alluded to earlier. Uh, and we have now adopted a, a pedestrian lighting policy at the SFPUC, and I'm happy to say that the capital plan includes funding for pedestrian lighting now, um, and whereas it hadn't in the past. The other um, highlight from the 10-year capital plan is that we, are also, we, uh, we have also uh, just recently completed a streetlight assessment that assessment uses a sample to um, uh, project what our uh, capital needs will be, and has a, estimated a 1.5 to a, a little over five million uh, needed to address urgent repairs on the streetlight system. Like um, you alluded to, Supervisor Weiner, the Guerrero Street corridor, which has already been fixed, but we know it's not it's not the only uh, area that is in urgent need of repair. Uh, that That assessment provided us with uh, a uniform and comprehensive method to take out into the field to assess the lighting and now we need to develop our implementation plan to to perform that work uh, The capital funds the capital plan funds ongoing implementation of that assessment effort and we'll have a much better um, uh, picture of the assets themselves than we presently do. We're, we're ahead of, of PG&E in that we have all of our streetlights mapped. We know what we own, and we know where it is. Uh, we don't have a good sense of the condition of every element of the streetlight system, and that's what this assessment um, uh, item on our capital plan will fund, is that more careful assessment.
3: So uh, from... I mean just taking off of that, basing mm-hmm. my comments off of that statement you just made, that's nice for the PUC-owned um, asset, but in my district where 95% of it is owned by PG&E, that's not comforting. So I have a, I, my problem and mm-hmm. frustration really lies with the unresponsiveness that this the utility company really has been to ratepayers. I mean, largely absent. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything from Tennis shoes along a, 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 on the on an overhead wire to people, you know, the company pointing the finger to PUC. No one, no one taking the ownership of it. This information is helpful in the sense that it maps out exactly. I know, so at least for 95% of my problems, pg e is the sole source uh, or the the remedy to solving solving these challenges. Mm-hmm. So. I'm interested in helping the city become owners of 95% of my um, my light poles. How, how do I help you with that process? Well, um, so a couple thoughts on that a tough question.
0: Well, this will make it official city policy to for that to happen, which is step one. Um, and I know that there are you know going to be issues in terms of the valuation of PG&E's. Uh, streetlights. Uh, I tend to think that, given the deferred maintenance, uh, they're probably not worth as much as PG&E might think they're worth. But uh, Miss Hale,
2: so on on the issue of you know w- where you began, Supervisor was with the concern about the level of service, right. and I'm I'm hopeful that we're going to make some headway on that, given the success we had um, asking the California PUC to require PG&E to have performance levels, to have performance goals, and to report their their um, their uh, maintenance activities on an annual basis. So I'm hopeful that will help. Of course, that doesn't, that doesn't get to the ownership issue, but at the end of the day, I, I, I suspect people wouldn't be as concerned about the ownership issue if the level of service were at the level that you wanted. Right. Um, uh, in terms of ownership, um, you know, PG&E has, has sold streetlights to other cities. Uh, the process for that is uh, typically a negotiation with the between the city and the utility, um, a uh, proceeding at the California PUC. Uh, because from the regulator's perspective, the owner of that asset is PG&E's ratepayers, mm. and so what the regulator wants to do is make sure that PG&E's ratepayers get appropriate value for that asset. Um, so. It's the CPUC, the California PUC, that ultimately um, uh, decides whether the price that PG&E and the city have negotiated is appropriate. Uh, and then that transaction can be authorized at the state level. Uh, so it is, it, it is um, uh, sort of a road that's been traveled, if you will, by other cities, and we could pursue it. Uh, For the situation uh, in District 10, where most of the streetlights are on PG&E-owned poles, there are some recent examples where um, PG&E has sold similar, you know, just the cross arm and the lamp and the um, uh, part of the streetlight, not the pole, because that's the wood utility pole. Um, So we have some ready examples of that. Uh, and when you when we 've looked at the systems that we know pg and e owns we 've tried to estimate what it would cost the city to completely replace those systems you know we pg and e not here to com- completely replace those systems and um, to install uh, led system in its place and we estimate that would cost us between sixty two and one hundred and fifteen million that 's just a rough estimate so it's it 's not a insignificant endeavor, and then we would be responsible for um, bringing those systems up to uh, our our level of service expectations and would need to uh, look at what the operation and maintenance costs would be for us to to assume those responsibilities
3: uh, I have another quick question. Um, I think about i think it 's been over a little over a year. I heard. Um, the general manager of the PUC speaking about a grid pilot program, putting um, certain, well, ultimately the goal is to have all of the lights in San Francisco on a grid so when a light burns out or is broken, Mm -hmm. it pops up on the grid and we're able to more efficiently and effectively go in and correct the program. What is the status of this pilot program?
2: Yeah, so we completed our pilot. Uh, We had, I think, five or six different... um, participants with systems located throughout the city that were operating a handful of lights um, remotely, able to know when the light was fully on, off, flickering, you know, what the conditions were in the field from a desktop or from a mobile device. Um, so we, were, we wouldn't, under this situation, need to rely on, on someone to notice and then take action. Because um, it is a two-step process, I think a lot of people notice when something's wrong, but not everybody takes action. Um, and so this would this would eliminate that those two steps. Uh, we would know we'd get a report every morning on what lights were working, what lights weren't, and we'd be able to roll trucks and, and make, cor- take corrective action. Um, we are uh, we just received uh, bids for uh, conversion. Of the um, streetlights we own that have a that are a cobra head style, so not historic or decorative, um, just a cobra head style, uh, and to in, to replace those and install this wireless control network that would allow us to monitor the streetlights, we received 31 bids uh, in that uh, request for proposal process and we're... Um, taking a look at what those bids tell us, and hopefully we'll be able to take action on on moving forward. That is a funded program; it was funded in prior a prior um, uh, capital plan year. Uh, it was funded at $16 million, and that would uh, convert about 17,000 of the lights that we own, and it would establish this wireless network. Um, so I'm I'm hopeful that in the next two to three years, that system will be completely deployed on those uh, cobra head style lights. Um,
3: the, on the, on the, um, now my question is specific to the quality of light. Mm-hmm. I think um, I heard that it was LED that we're trying to transition from. Yes. Um, just an LED has a higher, um, a better quality output of, of illumination. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yes. And what's the type of light that we have now that they like that orangey um it's a, a uh, we have um
2: high pressure sodium lights and metal halide lights that have more of an orangish glow mm-hmm. to them um they don't have they're not typically dark sky compatible so the light is um sort
3: of Diffuse. broadly
2: cast mm-hmm. and not focused on uh the street and the uh, and the sidewalk,
3: mm-hmm. and do we have do we have sensors on lights that um, when when the, when when there's a motion that automatically come on?
2: Uh, not typically on the
3: street lights. The only um, sensors we have on our streetlights
2: today um, sense the the level of lighting, um, so it, it it tells the light when it's dark enough to go on. Mm-hmm. Those are the only sensors sensors we have today. Okay, thank you. I have no other questions. Thank you for your time. Sure. And that concludes my presentation. I'm happy to take any other questions you may have. And I'll stay for the balance of the hearings. So if okay, you want to follow up. Thank you.
0: So right now when, uh, so in a Guerrero Street kind of situation where the PUC is going in and replacing a bunch of lights, how are you evaluating uh, whether to include pedestrian level lighting? And just for the benefit of the public,
4: mm-hmm.
0: um, we have our, our street light system in San Francisco by and large uh, was built um, Uh, as if pedestrians on sidewalks didn't exist and so the lights are very very high up and sort of arch over to shed light on the street um, uh, even though cars have headlights uh, and not on the sidewalk and so if you happen to have any trees for example it'll block out the light from reaching down to the sidewalk which leads to a lot of dark uh, areas and pedestrian pedestrian level lighting will be lower level lighting the traditional version of course is a sort of those old-style lights that are closer to the sidewalk, Uh, but even uh, um, one of the taller lights can have an additional cobra head placed lower down to light the sidewalk. So how does the PUC uh, make that decision?
2: So today there are um, nationally recognized guidelines for the amount of light that should be cast onto a sidewalk to um, address pedestrian lighting needs. We look to the Better Streets Plan, to guide us on where we should be um, uh, incurring additional costs to put pedestrian lights in um, we are evaluating all of the uh... streetlight improvement projects for the level of lighting that would hit this the sidewalk as well as the street uh... and are with the new lighting technologies now um, uh, the lighting it can be much more directionally centered on on the areas and less diffuse. Um, so we're seeing uh, we're including that in the in as a basic engineering step on all the lighting that we all the lighting improvements that we're engineering. Um, we will uh, only incur additional cost if we have to incur additional cost to meet that pedestrian lighting guideline, where um, the Better Streets Plan says. Uh, we should be installing street, uh, excuse me, pedestrian lighting. So it's become a standard part of our engineering design review. Okay, thank you.
0: Thank you. Okay, um, at this point we will open up item number one for public comment. Is there any public comment on item number one? If so, please come forward.
5: It about street lighting uh, so as we know. We I, I advise the mayor, uh, Lee Pumbley, p- 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 by uh, the access from Kearney to uh, Powell Street, tram, the access of cable car. So I walk from Montgomery all every day from Montgomery to Powell, and so so Therefore, I can see some lady like that, the 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 the, uh, the, 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 the Chinese lady. Because he, I, I suppose, he myself have were ordered from Kearney, upon the Sacramento and uh, uh, Stockton, and then uh, he's so exhausted, but totally uh, broke up. Therefore, he uh, got an accident. So, uh, I I can't think about it.
0: Is there any additional public comment on item number one? Seeing none, public comment is closed. Okay, uh, colleagues, I do have one minor uh, uh, typographical amendment. On page three, line five, uh, towards the end of that line, the word scale should be deleted. So it'll read, and developing pedestrian lighting standards by December 1st, 2014. So just deleting the word scale. Um, Can we take that amendment without objection? Yes. Okay, that amendment is adopted. And colleagues, could I have a uh, motion to forward item number one to the full. Uh, Board of Supervisors with positive recommendation. So moved. Okay, second. and without objection that will be the order. Thank you colleagues um, Madam clerk, can you please uh, call item number four?
1: Item number four is a resolution granting revocable permission to Recology Incorporated to occupy a portion of the public right-of-way for automated waste collection system construction within Candlestick Point, Hunter's Point, Shipyard.
0: Okay, uh, Supervisor Cohen is the author of item number four, and we have Barbara Moy from DPW here.
3: Thank you very much. Hi, everyone. It's nice to see you. Um colleagues, thanks for hearing this item. I will definitely keep my remarks very brief. This item relates to the approved infrastructure designs um, for the redevelopment of the Hunters Point Shipyard and Candlestick Point. One of the environmental components of this project is, is, is an automated waste collection system that will that will replace the traditional uh method of picking up garbage where people put uh where people put out bins on the sidewalk and it's picking and it's picked up by trucks. And it will be replaced by um, an underground network of of popes that use suction to transfer garbage, garbage and recycling to a centralized area. Uh, Barbara Moy is going to come up and um, speak on behalf a little bit on this item. She's from DPW and she's going to be making a small but short presentation. Thank you.
6: Thank you, Supervisor. Good afternoon, Supervisors. Barbara Moy with the Department of Public Works. And as uh, Supervisor Cohn mentioned. Um, we have before you a request for an encroachment permit for the, und- the automated waste collection system. Public Works re- received a request from Ecology to occupy the public right-of-way and maintain an automated, automatic waste collection system comprised of a series of underground pipes and manholes within the Candlestick Point and Hunters Street Shipyard Phase Two project areas. I'll show you the maps for the area. Candlestick Point. have the overhead, please. Thank you. is the area for Candlestick point And the area for Hunters Point Shipyard. Hunters 100 point, 100 point area, excuse me. This request was referred to the Planning Department, and the Planning Department has found this project is conformity with the general plan by their letter of dated April 18, 2014. The Planning Department and the Office of Community Investment and Infrastructure issued an addendum for this project on May 2, 2014. Further, a public hearing was held on May 21, 2014 by the Department of Public Works, and the Director of Public Works determined that this request should be recommended for approval. We request approval of this major encroachment permit. I'd like to inform you that the project sponsor, Recology, is here to answer any technical questions you may have on the system, and of course I'll be here to answer any questions regarding this permit. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Ms. Moy. Supervisor Cohen, is there anything additional before public comment?
3: Um, no.
0: Okay, we will then open up <laughs> uh, public comment on item number four. Is there any public comment?
5: Please come forward. Okay, Supervisor Supervisor Jimmy from Cohen. A couple of days ago, I was in San Francisco. I was driving from uh, I was able all the way to, uh, Japan Center. In between of, uh, actually, uh, awareness and, uh, market, I saw lots of, uh, young, 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 uh, young Caucasian men, uh, was fist fighting each other. So, uh, I can, I can tell for them to be, be like, so, it's sort of a superior, it's about a peer, uh, peer, uh, competition, a peer, uh, superior uh, way to handle, like, fist fighting each, to one another. However, I think, uh, I mean, uh, actually, uh, of this world, we, we don't achieve diabetes, so, I mean, in terms of being noble, wealthy, or um, uh, powerful. Because we exist for the purpose of just uh, a good friendship with people, uh, daily practice of everything, and uh, how to uh, help people, and treating people every day in life. Uh, it's not necessarily to be, uh, I mean, a job position, uh, uh, being difficult, uh, or sometimes charging, a everything. Uh, so, I think these young kids you know they, they may not know have a leader you know, a whole uh, leader in a society to uh, make them uh, more, uh, uh, with a more leader way academic co- uh, a, a, a academic uh, school of uh, like uh, systematic order of uh, good uh, behavior i mean apart from uh, the university college you know of such a like a, uh difficult element like uh, material physics. Oh.
0: Is there any additional public comment on item four? Seeing none, public comment is closed. Supervisor Cohen. Thank you.
3: you. I'd just like to motion that we move this forward with a positive recommendation.
0: Okay. Uh, the motion is to move item four to the full board with positive recommendation, and we will take that without objection.
3: Great. Thank you. Okay.
0: Uh, Madam Clerk, would you please call item number three?
1: Item number three is resolution granting revocable permission to Avalon Bay communities to occupy a portion of Hickory Street between Octavia and Laguna Streets.
0: Okay, and uh, Supervisor uh, Breed is the author of item number three and Connor Johnston from her office is here. Mr. Johnston.
7: Thank you, Chair Weiner. You guys are keeping me on my, my toes today. Uh, so I'll just be very brief here, give you the 30,000 foot. Uh, there are a variety of parcels in District 5 that used to be part of the Central Freeway. Two of those are Parcels P and Parcel O at Oak and Octavia. Uh, Avalon Bay is developing a project on Parcel P, and MOH will ultimately be developing affordable housing on Parcel O. Uh, In between those two is an old alley, a one-way street called Hickory Street, that actually hasn't been in use use since prior to the Central Freeway. So now, uh, in conjunction with the project that they are developing, Avalon Bay is seeking permission to make a variety of improvements to Hickory Street and to reinstate it as a public thoroughfare. So that's the general landscape, and I will turn it over to uh, our representative from the Department of Public Works, and then uh, Joe from Avalon Bay is here as well with any uh, additional information you may need. Thank you. Thank
8: you. <coughs>
9: Okay, thank you. Uh, good afternoon Board of Supervisors. My name is Brahane and I'm with Public Works San Francisco, uh, Street Use and Mapping. <coughs> okay, thank you. Uh, this Hickory is a major encroachment that uh, our office received from uh, the developer Avalon uh, Bay Communities. <coughs> it's, uh, it's a part of a bigger project which uh, includes <coughs> uh, a so I can go to the next one. Yeah, and Hickory actually is also known as Octavia. Uh, the addresses are uh, 305, 325, and 323 Octavia Street, which <coughs> uh, I can have. The The project itself is a, a five story building, uh has 182 units. Uh, residential and uh, retail, it was parking street underground. The next one shows that the lot with yellow is the actual lot where the building is built and the major encroachment is on Hickory between Octavia and Laguna Street. (laughs) Uh, Initially Octavia uh, was was undeveloped, Uh, part of it was just up to the lot 1A was uh, drivable. Uh, the uh, major encroachment which imp- includes the improvement was to develop the street uh, and make it a true street uh, one way uh, coming from Octavia going to Laguna <coughs> and it has uh, major other stuff. It will have a curbless uh, street or a, street, a shared street which is uh, part of the better street plan. <coughs> it will have two, one garage entrance and an exit uh, along that street. Uh, it will be a one-way uh, street, uh, sidewalk vaults will be on the side on, on the street. It will have a bioretention swell, new side, will be, next, new side swell will be extended to an existing one. Uh, they will have a ve- uh, valley gutter which is uh, currently approved by SFPUC. <coughs> it will uh, have, uh, among others, will have landscaping trees and uh, special pavers. And this basically shows uh, the uh, improvement even though it's it's not as clear on my drawing. <clears throat> but then uh, the next one, uh, after that what the city, after reviewing we refer to s- other city agencies such as City Planning, uh, SFPUC, uh, San Francisco, uh, SFMTA, and uh, Fire Department for the approval. <clears throat> Uh, city planning approved and uh, recommended for approval and uh, it complies and it falls. it's found in project and in compliance their uh, general plan and they approved it on May 9, 2013. <clears throat> SFMTA approved and recommended for approval on August 28 of this year <clears throat> and uh, fire department approved it on their pre-planning of last year. Uh, actually, February 15, 2013. Moving forward, after every city agency that we referred uh, pro- recommended for approval, we had uh, uh, a notification to the neighbors, which is the 300 radius map, uh, and uh, we had uh, scheduled for uh, a public hearing within Public Works. <coughs> uh, we had our public hearing, and there was no objection and uh, Thereafter, the Director of Public Work recommended this project forward for the resolution uh, to grant uh, revocable permission to Avalon Bay, and that's where we are now. Any question?
7: Thank you.
0: Okay, thank you very much.
7: Okay. Yes. So, I'm Joe Kirchhoffer with Avalon Bay. I'd just like to take a few seconds. Thank you, Chair Weiner and uh, supervisors. Um, I'd like to thank Connor and Supervisor Breed's office for sponsoring this legislation. Also, I'd like to thank staff from DPW for doing such a great job to uh, to get this completed in a timely way. Um, Berhan, who just spoke, Nick Elsner, Carlos Short, um, Jerry Sanguinetti, Lynn Fong were all instrumental in, in helping make this happen. Um, and as we, you know, we're nearing the completion of the of the residential part of this project, um, and we're thrilled to be providing what is sure to be such a well loved um, public amenity um, for the public, um, and really making the Better Streets Plan and the Living Alley Program a reality. So thank you.
0: Thank you very much. Mr. Johnson has set it for presentations. Okay. Uh, At this point, we will open up item number three to public comment. Is there any public comment on item three? If so, please come forward.
5: Uh, Good afternoon. Uh, Again, uh, I would say, I mean, uh, uh, with my recent uh, study upon the uh, area on San Francisco, was striking, maleficent area like Angel Island, uh, Treasure Island, and Alcatraz. I would say, although I am, I'm just a low-image low person, I'm not a prisoner of Trust Island. I'm not a hostage of uh, a Trust Island. I'm not a slave to Angel Island. Because uh, we, as men, we have to be uh, like more open-minded about everything in the uh, so world society. Everything we see. So everything about all those... Uh, uh, if I have it's this is a, a thing for us to uh, appreciate uh, be, uh, joyfulness to stay around, to project our health and destiny uh, upon the Dawes uh, Pipe pathway, our full quarter of the land uh, with a common objective.
0: Is there any additional public comment on item number three? Seeing none, public comment is closed. <laughs> Colleagues, could I have a motion to forward item three to the full Board of Supervisors with positive recommendation? Okay, without objection, that will be the order. Madam Clerk, can you please call item number two?
1: <clears throat> item number two is a hearing requesting presentations from various departments regarding the
10: Don't Block the Box Traffic Congestion Program.
0: Okay, Supervisor Kim, I've uh, requested this hearing.
10: Thank you, Chair Weiner, um, and thank you all for being here today um, for this hearing. Um, as many of you know, um, because I talk about this issue so much, um, pedestrian safety is a very important issue um, for our office, um, and especially for the district that we represent, which includes the South of Market um, and the Tenderloin neighborhoods. Um, because of the close proximity of the neighborhoods um, to our freeways and um, entrances and exits to a variety of different neighborhoods, and of course, employment centers, um, the um, South of Market area, Tenderloin, in particular Easton Soma, South Beach, and Rincon Hill, in particular have historically experienced an intense amount of gridlock as a condition of their close proximity. This was exacerbated, of course, um, when we opened our Giants Stadium um, in 2000 to begin hosting um, our. Our, our World Series team um, and baseball season, um, and continues to be, as we continue to grow this part of San Francisco, one of the most dense areas of San Francisco. In San Francisco uh, Community Transportation Authority's recent 2010 SOMA Circulation Study, they projected that there would be total gridlock in the South of Market by 2035 unless the city was able to reduce traffic volumes by at least 26%. We're already seeing that today. as as jobs and housing continue to grow in our neighborhoods, which is a positive thing. Um, But we want to make sure that we're continuing to work on pedestrian safety concerns um, throughout the district. In 2011, we established a District 6 pedestrian safety work group to bring together a diverse cross-section of voices from the Tenderloin, South of Market, South Beach Rincon neighborhoods to ensure a strong coalition to advocate for pedestrian safety priorities. One of the issues that we heard a lot about was about the impact of walking through our neighborhoods, particularly through the evenings or after games, um, and the experience of feeling um, intimidated by the number of cars that gridlock throughout our streets, whether it's 3rd Street, um, Townsend, King, Main and Harrison, and other intersections, um, with cars that are angrily trying to get in and out, um, of our neighborhoods, and the experience that it has been often for our pedestrians and cyclists that have to maneuver their way around cars, particularly the cars that block the box. We also know that we have lost many lives and also have injured many of our neighbors um, because we have not always been able to deal um, and manage some of the congestion stories, um, conge- congestion. Um, uh, outcomes very well. One of the first and most heartbreaking stories I heard were from two of our Rincon Hill residents who lost a 63-year-old neighbor and friend after she was hit and killed by a careless driver in December of 2004 at the intersection of Maine and Harrison. The victim was out in her neighborhood because her doctor had told her that she needed to walk more for her health. And her doctor is right. Walking is healthy. And as a city, we should be encouraging walking as a top mode of transportation in the city. And as we continue to build our office and residential buildings throughout um, our city, we have to have more people to walk because it's just not going to be a reality that people are going to be able to stay and drive in their cars, and our city is going to continue to be able to operate. We should be designing our streets so that pedestrians are prioritized above all other modes. And so these residents have decided to organize to ensure that their intersections were designed better. And they organized partic- particularly around the Maine and Harrison intersection. They were told then by the Liberal Street's Deputy Director of Planning that Maine and Harrison was not a viable candidate for traffic calming measures. But he acknowledged that a strong traffic enforcement program needed to be implemented in that area. Ten years later the traffic has only gotten worse and many of us that live in the South of Market and the Tenderloin experience it on a daily basis. Harrison Street serves a four-lane westbound arterial that carries more than 13,000 drivers daily, most eager to get home as quickly as possible via the Bay Bridge, the 101, and the 280. Recently, um, a resident sent me a video segment by Stanley Roberts of Cron 4, a segment of people behaving badly in September that highlighted the insane car gridlock and blatant bad behaviors of drivers frustrated with the traffic and then driving through the intersection at the yellow or red light, thereby then blocking all the traffic that's coming um, on the other angle. One of our pedestrian safety work group members even set up a camera at the main and Harrison intersection to film all of these violations. And since 2003, three people have died at this intersection. In New York City in the last couple of years, they have implemented a Don't Block the Box campaign by um, fining drivers who block the flow of traffic by forcing their way into the intersection with a $90 fine. Virginia Beach also posted up Don't Block the Box signs at every um, intersection, threatening a $200 fine. Thirty years ago, San Francisco had a public Don't Block the Box campaign, with traffic enforcements targeted at the worst gridlocked Um, intersection, but it has dissipated without formal commitments in place for our city agencies to continue this work. Over the last couple of years, and I want to thank SFMTA in particular, um, we've been working to create some strategies about what we can do around Don't Block the the Box. And um, SFMTA did um, initiate a pilot from July to September of which, um, whose data they're going to present um, at today's hearing, so today's hearing is really on what we can do to continue our work around this, how we can make our pilot permanent um, throughout intersections throughout our district, and also what we can, what other tools we may have. I also want to recognize that SFMTA has been working with our office to get "Don't Block the Box." sorry, this is so hard to say, (laughs) don't block the box, (laughs) cameras um, to help with the enforcement, to help buttress the work that SFMTA and SFPD um, can do in these areas. We know that people will be moving slowly throughout the South of Market during certain periods of time, but we want them to at least move, and don't block the box campaign will be an important um, arena for us to be able to get that moving. So um, we do have um, SFMTA here and I want to thank and recognize Aaron Miller, uh, Miller Blankenship, Peter Albert and also their policy and planning intern Ariel Fleischer who did the car counts and prepared the data for the pilot. And we also have Liz Bryson from SFCTA as well as Cameron Sami, who is the enforcement manager for SFMTA sustainable streets division. I also want to recognize um, SFPD. I'm not sure if they're here yet, um, but Captain Tim Obazir from Traffic Command will also be here to answer questions, um, maybe momentarily, about the pilot, and also SFPD's enforcement partnership with SFMTA. So, um, unless there are more comments, I do. Uh, Supervisor Weiner, and then I'll open up to SFMTA for presentation.
0: Great. Uh, thank you, Supervisor Kevin. Thank you for calling for this uh, hearing today. This is uh, it's an important issue, and particularly in South of Market, but um, to a lesser degree in some other areas, this is a real problem. Uh, but South of Market is definitely the, uh, the epicenter of some of this uh, gridlock and the resulting uh, violations of the law that we see that really have profound impacts on traffic flow and neighborhood walkability and quality of life. Um, and this really uh, blocking the box, in my view, is part of a broader uh, challenge that we have as a city where um, our streets are uh, basically uh, the so you can you can sit down or you can, yeah we 'll we'll, we'll get to you in one second um, uh, where uh, otherwise it looks like i 'm lecturing you which i 'm not um, uh, where we have a broader issue uh, in in San Francisco where streets are a little bit like the wild west, uh, and earlier this year we held a hearing at this committee on double parking. Uh, and the fact that we have rampant double parking throughout the city, which also has huge impacts on uh, congestion and, and creating traffic jams and traffic flow, not to mention uh, blocking bike lanes and, uh, and causing other problems. And uh, despite having this huge amount of uh, double parking, uh, we, we saw extraordinarily little uh, enforcement and, in fact, uh, when SFPD was here in that hearing, because ultimately SFPD has to write those tickets, MTA has very limited latitude, uh, we, we heard that um, in many situations the worst you can expect is that an officer is going to tell you to please move your car and stop double parking here. And of course if if people don't have an, uh, an actual fear of potentially getting a ticket, whether it's because they park their car in the middle of the street to double park or they decide that they're going to move into the intersection uh, and block the box despite the fact that it's clear they're not going to make it through. If people think that the worst thing that's going to happen is maybe someone's going to tell them to move along, that's not a disincentive. And so we have to have consistent and focused enforcement on Locking in the box but also on double parking. Because we know, uh, and I've seen many situations in South of Market, where you have a double-parked vehicle uh, because they say, oh, it's a... It's a four-lane uh, road because there are so many wide roads south of the market. It's a four-lane road. I can just park my car in this lane and do my business. It's not going to bother anyone. Well, um, three blocks of uh, traffic jam later, it, it does bother a lot of people. And so this is a really important conversation. I'm glad we're having this hearing, um, but it, but it goes it goes beyond blocking the box to just having that kind of focused and consistent enforcement so people understand that they have to follow the rules and that there is a significant risk of consequences if they don't follow the rules. And then finally, I just want to close by uh, uh, saying I I agree that the the gridlock we're going to see south of markets, it's horrible now. Um, and it's just going to get worse and worse and worse um, unless we take very um, aggressive steps. Uh, and those steps uh, have to include having fewer cars uh, uh, in the area. And uh, it's just one more. Uh, example of why it's in everyone's interest, and including car owners and people who need to drive, to have fewer cars on the road, and that there seems to be a view by some that to make it easier to drive in the city, we should be uh, encouraging people uh, to drive. Uh, and that is not the case. If you want to make it easier to walk and to bike and to be on Muni and to drive in, in San Francisco, there need to be fewer cars on the roads, which means we have to give people uh, other options, including cr- transit, including biking, including car sharing and cabs, uh, and not just making people feel like uh, they, they are not going to be able to get around unless they have uh, that car. Uh, so with that, Supervisor Cohen.
3: And all of the stakeholders, um, Supervisor Cam, that you went down, I was just wondering if the, if we got any input from the transit workers, from the actually folks that are driving the, uh, the buses. I'm, I'm sure MTA can cover some of this, but certainly those that
10: are blocking the box do impact Muni. Yeah. Um, if Muni is trying to get through, and I've certainly been on buses that can't get through on a green light um, because there are cars blocking the intersection, and every rider on the bus is incredibly frustrated by the one individual in the car that's making it impossible for an entire bus to cross the street.
3: Perfect. Yeah. Good. I, I, I was I was hopeful that um, we we'll, we we would need to hear from the um, from the transit. Workers. The other thing that's also very interesting are delivery trucks that block, <laughs> ironically, as I'm, uh, I'm on the bus, usually the 19, traveling from Petro Hill down through the south of Market um, into District 6, and there are delivery trucks that block. I'm seeing not, not only are they blocking one lane traffic, now they're blocking another lane of traffic. And I'm happy to give you the name of the companies, too. I've made note of that. Peter <laughs> Albert, I'll just pass it on down to you. Um, or maybe I'll pass it on to PD that I see. In, in the in the uh, audience here today, um, but you know, f- from f- I'm I'm looking forward to hearing the hearing discussion, um, particularly hearing PD's perspective, because I think it all boils down to uh, in enforcement, and I know that we are pretty um, strapped in terms of our resources. We are uh, on the uptick and and getting more officers out of the academy and onto the st- out and out of the academy and onto the street, but as we um, Get back to our high to our um, our city chartered mandated uh, funding levels. I think that, from my from my perspective, it sounds like it's just going to be an, an enforcement issue. Um, how do we begin to mm-hmm. enforce the rules that are on the book? And then also, I mean, we've got competing priorities. I mean, District Six has a lot of challenges, as does District Ten. So. Without further ado, we can go yeah, ahead and get in. And
0: I just, you know, it's also, it's, uh, the immunity issue is an important one, but it's also, it's a public safety issue uh, for our fire trucks. Um, we've actually, um, you know, we, we've, we've been having this conversation about how to get fire trucks around. There's a, a notion that somehow making streets safer for pedestrians or bikes is going to impede fire truck access, which I think is completely untrue. And uh, that's a conversation we'll continue to have. Um, but well, I'll tell you what does uh, block fire trucks are uh, vehicles that are violating the law and creating gridlock, whether it's double parking or blocking the, the box. And uh, we did a, actually a ride-along with... Um, with uh, Chief Hayes White and some of our commanders and as well as some of our transit advocates uh, because they wanted to show us um, some of the troubles they had getting around. And of course none of those troubles, not a single one, uh, was caused by a, a pedestrian bulb out or a bike lane. Every single time there was a problem, so it's because you had a vehicle, usually a delivery truck, but sometimes a smaller vehicle, either double parked or blocking an intersection. Uh, and so it really, uh, the fire department should be part of this conversation too because as I've expressed to the fire department, fire department should be advocating to SFPD to be more consistent about, um, about enforcing these traffic laws because it has fire safety impacts. Supervisor Kim.
10: Um, no, I just I want to get onto the presentation. But I did want to um, articulate the very interesting thing about Don't Block the Box is that SFPD does have jurisdiction in this arena to site. It's um, different from a moving violation. It's a parking violation as well because you're not moving. Um, and so we're trying to pilot and see how SFMTA can work with SFPD's limited resources um, to do additional um, enforcement um, in certain um, targeted areas. So uh, I'll hand this over to SFMTA.
11: Hi, good afternoon. I'm Erin Miller. Um, I am the project manager for the SOMA gridlock enforcement pilot, uh, intersection gridlock enforcement pilot, excuse me, with the SFMTA. And I have a presentation to um, give you a summary of our findings and make some preliminary recommendations from the Don't Block the Box pilot. So I'm going to talk about intersection blocking, but I did want to just take a moment to place this pilot in the context of the Waterfront Transportation Assessment, which is something that we've been working on since late 2012 and um, a project that we worked very closely with the community and in our own agency, regional transportation partners, and even development sponsors to develop um, a list of transportation strategies that we believed could help both existing gaps in the transportation network as well as to serve future demand in a growing neighborhood in San Francisco. Um, What we heard really loud and clear from the community is that we can't wait any longer, five years, ten years, fifteen years to see these improvements are too long. And so we took a look at these. these strategies a little bit closer to see if we could pull some of those out to run pilots. We've been running several pilots in the in our agency, and they're uh, sort of an efficient way to get some things on the streets pretty quickly. Um, and so the idea for the Don't Block the Box enforcement pilot was born from that. <clears throat> so. Um, To design uh, the pilot and scope the pilot, we reached out again with the community. Um, These dots are all representations of different intersections that are either requesting enforcement or that are seeing enforcement. Uh, The yellow dots came from work that we did with the Warriors Transportation Subcommittee. Um, The purple dots are from a memo that was put together together uh, by the uh, South Beach, Rincon Hill, Mission Bay Neighborhood Association, um, and then the blue dots are actually locations where our PCOs are currently um, uh, using enforcement <coughs> commonly in the in the PM peak. Um, the red locations are the co- the locations that, after looking at all of this together with our with our enforcement division and our trans- uh, traffic engineers, we decided would be Good candidates for the the pilots. Um, We settled on Harrison and Main and Bryant and 2nd Street. You talked a little bit about the residential growth around Harrison and Main, and so that's a really important thing to look at. And interestingly, our PCOs told us that uh, 2nd and Bryant doesn't get uh, enforcement on a regular basis, and they thought that that would be a good candidate. And if you've ever seen that intersection, you probably know why. So to run the pilot, um, we enlisted 11 of our summer interns. Um, They were fantastic. I couldn't have done this without them. Um, We sent them out into the field to count cars blocking the two intersections on six days over a three-day period, uh, excuse me, over a three-month period during the PM peak. And it also happened to be on Giants afternoon game days. Um, Initially, we chose those days because we wanted to sort of look at the worst of the worst um, in hindsight, we're t- in talking about it in our agency, we think that maybe that's not the best representation because we know that there's bad behavior going on already every day, and so we might have looked at a particularly special um, uh, condition with that.
0: Okay. So this is a quick question. Sure. My, and this is flying up on something Supervisor Kim mentioned. My understanding is so, and this is whether blocking the box or double parking. A, a parking control officer, if you have a car that's just stopped where it's not supposed to be, and so it's violating the whatever the distance is from the sidewalk, from the curb, uh, can issue a ticket. But if that car then starts moving, the P.C.O. no longer has power to cite the vehicle, and then it's just S.F.P.D.
11: Um, I, I, I'm not exactly sure about that specific condition, but I will talk a little bit of, in a few slides about the, the um, California Vehicle Code citation okay. and, and what that Great. entails. Um, the police department might have a, a better answer for some of those questions no. after after the presentation. I just know we've
0: heard from uh, from MTA before that there is that challenge. Sure,
11: um, Cameron Cameron Sammy is our enforcement yeah. manager, and he he thinks he can right. answer that question for you
12: too. So. Hi, my name is Cameron Sammy, Supervisor. Uh, yes, we can cite if the vehicle is parked. If we observe that they are not actively loading or unloading their products right. with trucks, with vehicles, zero tolerance, we will cite them. But if they start moving, yes, that's that's uh, PD's jurisdiction. Right, because now it's a moving violation. Yes.
0: Okay, thank you. Okay.
11: Okay, so the first two days of the pilot, we went out and established a baseline um, of numbers blocking the intersection and numbers blocking the crosswalk. Just to let you understand what that was, um, can I get the slides? Thank you. Um, This is what we counted. We counted cars in the middle of the intersection on the inside of the crosswalk. And we also counted cars that were halfway in or completely in the crosswalk. And um, technically, the citations look at the whole intersection. They don't distinguish between whether cars are in the inner center of the intersection of the crosswalk. We were just interested in looking at the numbers in the crosswalks because of the questions around pedestrian safety and accessibility. Uh, days three and four of the pilot, these are the first days that we had enforcement uh, on site. They issued citations. So, again, um, the citations are in, uh, issued under California Vehicle Code 22526. Uh, the Anti-Gridlock Act of 1987 allowed uh, PCOs to issue parking citations for cars that were stopped in the crosswalk. Um, the, there are two subcat. Well, there are several subcategories of this citation, but the two that our PCOs are looking for are cars that are going through the intersection, and they, if you, they can't move into the crosswalk or the intersection unless they have enough room on the opposite side of the intersection uh, to, to pull into. Um, and likewise, if they're turning, it's the, it's the uh, citation B. Um, now, what I do understand about um, the police department in this case is that if the intersections have a sign and don't block the intersection sign and a vehicle um, ignores that, they can be cited and that is a moving violation as well. And the citation fine is a little bit higher on that. <laughs> And then days five and six, we had our enforcement officers out using hand signals, and there were um, officers issuing citations, excuse me, as well on those days. Excuse me. Um, so, pardon me. Um, Okay, we were interested in evaluating if the citations versus the hand signals showed themselves to be more effective one or the other, and while we basically found them to be equally effective, we did see um, a little bit of an advantage for the hand signals in the pedestrian um, intersection blocking. So, what did the data tell us? Um, At both locations, the data showed that Intersection and crosswalk blocking are lower when PCOs are present. Uh, issuing citations and using using hand signals to manage movements were both effective, um, with an indication of about a 10% advantage, as I just mentioned, for um, intersection blocking if they were using hand signals. Um, I think that's if you think about it, it kind of makes sense. It's the the people on the ground helping people crossing, um, so it has maybe a different kind of focus. Um, me. And this is informational. It's not a data point, but I think that there's some interest in, in costs and revenues that are generated from these activities. So um, this is uh, and the little blue thing that you can't read at the bottom says costs are preliminary and subject to change. Um, but the cost of running the pilot with our um, intern staff and our parking control officers was a total of about $27,000, or about $4,500 a shift, so fairly expensive. The, um, the income that we got from the citations that we issued um, was uh, $9,000. Uh, $9, so it was $10,000 gross. For each citation, the state gets um, $9 of those, of those funds, and we keep the rest. It goes to MTA's operating budget. Um, and it 's also notable here that we didn't issue citations every single day, so the, we didn't issue as as many citations as maybe the, the costs of the um, uh, pilot would have been. So um, in summary, what we saw is that enforcement works. um, The data shows intersection and crosswalk blocking are lower when PCOs are present uh, as compared to when there's no traffic enforcement. Um, It contributes to more civilized driver behavior, a safer, and more secure pedestrian environment, and a better quality of life in a quickly evolving residential neighborhood. Um, anecdotally, we also know that residents in the area are very interested in seeing more enforcement, and so, in terms of quality in life, we think that this is something that that helped that would help them. Um, our preliminary recommendations uh, include targeted enforcement um, combined with an active uh, media ca- campaign so you talked about a lot about enforcement for several different concerns. Um, There are three E's that we like to talk about. There's enforcement, education, and engineering. And what we know um, didn't happen with this pilot is that we didn't do any kind of education about what we were doing. And we're pretty sure that people don't know the law. So part of it is helping people understand what's legal and not. Um, And then another thing that we'll probably be looking into um, is, doing a little bit of an uh, an engineering analysis in the area to make sure that signage is visible, that it's posted where it needs to be, that striping um, and tow-away zones are are, um, working as well as they can for it. Um, Cameron? Cameron will talk a little bit more about um, the recommendations
10: around enforcement. Through the chair, can I just ask a quick question about the ticket price um, or the ticket cost? I I know that there's a difference between what MTA um, penalty is and SFPD's penalty for the same um, violation. Is um, Is it set by the state or is this something that SFMTA can set similar to its parking tickets?
11: I'm not. I'm, I can. I can look into that, but I'm not sure of the answer. Okay. Thank you. It is a California Vehicle Code violation, so perhaps. Okay. Perhaps I can go to the state. Okay.
12: Again, Supervisors uh, Cameron, Sammy, enforcement manager. Um, just briefly about what we're doing today. Uh, we've we've pretty much focused on <clears throat> intersections that lead to the uh, Bay Bridge access and uh, in more recent times, in the last about year and a half, we've spent a considerable amount of resources focusing on the Market Street corridor Uh, originally for the uh, transit effectiveness project, uh, now um, Muni Forward. Um, Both cases, their uh, issues are the same, intersections with gridlock, and um, because these, historically, these locations have had much more more so like Folsom Street, First, First and Harrison, Folsom and Ex- Essex on-ramps, they, they lead into a funnel onto the freeway and have been historically a, a major problem for us. So we've been out at First and Harrison for several years now and right now unless we need to have PCOs actively performing fixed post, we are running the, uh, the signal box right now just to keep traffic flowing so we don't have a bottleneck and it seems to work pretty good. We do this on Thursdays and Fridays every week, we have a P- one PCO there and again if we need more whether PD request support or Muni request support, we will deploy a supervisor or or PCOs to locations that are needed. And depending on the circumstances, they'll either assist in fixed post, pedestrian uh, access, uh, vehicular movement, or or any combination of those. Um, Again, uh, we talked a little bit about the three E's. I think it's important that we have public awareness, education. Uh, I see and drive the city quite a bit and I see certain lack of signage or striping that are clear to me public is either not aware sometimes or not clear as to what they should do or what their rights are. Resulting from the pilot, um, certainly enforcement uh, recognizes the need for increased uh, PCO support at the intersections or at key intersections. What we'd like to do is um, initially establish for the a.m. p.m. or for the p.m. periods and again we want to focus on Thursday and Fridays because historically those have been the worst days. It's not to say they are the worst but historically. So we'd like to use or deploy a small group of PCOs for Thursdays and Fridays between the peak periods of 3.30 and 6.30. So whether, depending on the intersection attributes, whether it's more pedestrian necessary or needed or more vehicle problems, we'll have six PCOs, three intersections, two PCOs at each intersection. Again, unless the attributes are such that we need more or less. And determine if we need additional enforcement. We can work with and we will work with SFPD if we want to do additional what we'll call saturations or stings uh at, at particular uh intersections if we feel the need to do it. But if we could start with a small group of PCOs and move around the key intersections that we define and see if we can change behaviors, enforce at a given intersection, maybe one day, come back to it either the next day or two days later, and just move around so that we we mix up the predictability of what we do. Um, And I think initially you know we want to get some data to to show that the the type of enforcement that we're able to do with the staffing that we do have is effective. Any questions?
10: Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you.
11: Um, thank you, Cameron. So my presentation is finished. I did want to um, also give a little can i can I get the slides again um, another shout out. Um, our interns were really great this summer, and i we couldn 't have made this pilot happen without them. They were out there for hours at night in the middle of all that craziness, counting cars, which is probably kind of boring. Um, So I just wanted to thank them. Now, Liz Bryson is following this, but if you have any other questions, um, we're happy to answer.
10: I know we have a number of residents that want to speak, so I'm going to hold off my questions and comments until after public comment. Okay. But if we could have Liz Bryson come up.
13: Good afternoon, supervisors. Liz Bryson with the San Francisco County Transportation Authority. And I'm here today just to try to contextualize the Don't Block the Box enforcement pilot in context of the broader set of strategies that um, we have to manage the really challenging problem of traffic congestion throughout the city and particularly in SOMA. So to start, um, I wanted to just throw up a couple pictures uh, that I took. Um, This was on opening day of giant season uh, traffic congestion, there it is, and also the impact that it has to Muni that uh, Supervisor Cohen discussed in her opening remarks as well as to pedestrians, not very fun to cross when the, um, the crosswalk is blocked. And also for cyclists and truck drivers, it's very hard to navigate a large truck through this um, gridlock type of condition and also here's a bicyclist that's gone all the way to the other side of the street to get around the truck um, with a blocked box. And I wanted to introduce it in this way in that this problem of all the cars on the street is one that um, I don't think is going to be solved by don't block the box. Um, There's a reality that there's a lot of people that want to go home by crossing the Bay Bridge, and the bottleneck there is how quickly the cars can get on the Bay Bridge. But what we can do through Don't Block the Box is mitigate the impact that has on people trying to get elsewhere, either by car or by bike or by walking or by transit. Um, That said, I know some of us are still concerned about that that bigger picture problem, so um, I wanted to just sort of frame the issue in context of the set of tools we have in the toolbox to manage congestion and it's helpful to conceptualize those in context of supply side and demand side strategies. Now, on the supply side, um, San Francisco is a very enlightened city. We know we can't build our way out of congestion by widening roads or adding more lanes to roads. Um, And uh, there are still a few other things on the supply side that include the type of enforcement that we're describing and discussing today, as well as things like signal timing. And another one that I think is important to think about in context of Mission Bay, which is reconnecting street networks that are not well-gridded because a grid is a very resilient um, uh, thing. And then on the demand side, there's a whole lot of things you can do. Um, We could think of one set of things that include um, increasing or improving more efficient options, and by that I mean things that are more efficient in terms of how much space they take up on the roadway. So better, faster, more frequent, reliable transit, better, safer bike lanes, uh, safer, more attractive pedestrian amenities, and faster and more reliable options for carpoolers. And then the last category on the demand side would be getting the right incentive structure, so using price to manage demand that includes everything from the SF Park um, pricing that um, is already underway in the city, things like the cordon pricing type of system that has been studied previously by the SFCTA as well as the category of transportation demand management strategies that um, can include things like working with employers to provide um, flexible work schedules. we should do all of these things to manage congestion. I want to say that I don't personally think there's any silver bullet. Um, we need to work at all the different pieces to really address this, this challenging issue. Uh, so I want to say that the Transportation Authority just recently completed our San Francisco Transportation Plan, um, and some of the relevant recommendations I pulled from that pretty much mirror that whole list. And it's not just SFCTA. Of course, SFMTA and their strategic plan also echo the importance of all of these types of strategies. That said, I I would say that the the devil is in the details, and it's easy to say we should do all of these things, but how much do we need and when and how do we get from where we are now to where we want to be? Um I now wanted to talk about how this relates to one component of the waterfront transportation assessment that Erin introduced at the beginning of the hearing that the transportation authority is supporting on. Um, we were calling it phase two, now we're calling it the some emission-based central waterfront transportation needs and solutions analysis, which is a mouthful but hopefully very uh, descriptive of what it actually is. <laughs> And um, this work is underway, and I want to talk just provide a few of the um, initial findings and then um, call attention to a public meeting we're going to be having in a few weeks. So uh, the transportation needs and solutions analysis is focused on SOMA and the Mission Bay Central Waterfront area, um, where so much of our growth has been planned. And the two key outcomes we're trying to get to around the end of the year, early next year, would be um, a target of peak hour trips by corridor by mode that accommodates all of the trips forecast. And two, getting at the representative scale of investment in the other modes of transportation needed to actually make that system work. Um, so um, I, here are a few of the, what we've learned so far of which we'll have more to share in the coming weeks. Um, so the first point I want to make is about um, how much we've already approved versus what else is being considered on the land use side. Now um, what we call the baseline would be everything that's already in the queue and is under construction right now or coming down the pike. Uh, That is much more substantial than any of the additional developments that are under discussion. I think focusing on how to make our baseline future work while also accommodating the needs that exist today on the ground um, is an important incremental step. Um, On the roadway capacity side. in the Transbay Corridor, um, we're pretty much out of capacity. Um, that makes a lot of sense if you think about it. People are trying to get on the bridge, and really, um, Supervisor Kim, when your initial remarks you mentioned the study we did a couple years ago, 26% more. It, it, our finding before was that in 20 in the future we need 26% less vehicle travel to not break the network. That's about the same as today. I learned that's a much easier way to explain that finding. Um, but then what we've now been able to do is a little bit more sophisticated analysis, thinking about not just the Trans Bay Corridor, but other people going to and through SOMA and Mission Bay. And south of the freeways in SOMA, as well as the central waterfront, aren't really at capacity right now, but um, will be... Getting close to that in the future as some of the um, development plans move forward, we have room for about maybe 20% more growth if we keep the same supply of roadway before we end up with a problem. Um, I do think that's uh, relevant for Mission Bay where we don't have a good street grid and that um, accommodating that growth without some sort of change could be um, challenging. So still to come is the discussion of all of the transit-first modes, transit bike ped and TDM that we're working on right now. Um, but I do want to emphasize the conclusion that I think we're going to be drawing from this which is that we can improve existing conditions and we can accommodate forecast new trips through incremental upgrades beginning with the low cost enhancements while working towards larger capital investments and policy changes. Um, I feel like when I did the SOMA circulation work I fell short of where I wanted to get which is that planners should be able to conclude that we can actually solve our transportation problems and so that's where we're headed now. Um, speaking of where we're headed, um, this is a schedule that shows the roadmap of the rest of this particular effort. Um, we're somewhere between the first and the second red dot right now. Um, we have been in email touch recently with the public about our plans to move forward with this new scope. Um, we are planning a public meeting on November 19th from six to 830 p.m. at the port of San Francisco. Um, and we hope to wrap up with our findings and recommendations late this year, early next year. Um, of course, that won't be the end because um, this is a, a, a problem or a challenge that has been created over decades, and there's some more steps to get there. Um, this is my very colorful flowchart that hopefully conceptualizes how we actually get to the future that we all want to see in San Mission Bay. <clears throat> so first, I want to talk about the gray. The gray is that there's a lot of things we're already doing that's going to make a huge difference and be really important. Um, this is not a comprehensive list, but includes Caltrain electrification and downtown extension, Muni Forward, Central Subway, Mission Bay Loop, Embarcadero Bikeway, Rankin Hill Transit Study, Central Soma Transportation Improvements, um, Bart and Muni's rail cars, Vision Zero, Walk First, Butter Market Street, Van Ness, BRT, Gary BRT, the 6th Street Multimodal Corridor, and SFMTA fleet plan. I'm so I'm sorry,
3: what was that? One more time?
13: <laughs> I think you just have kidding. it printed on a slide. I'm just kidding.
3: <laughs> I just wanted to see if you could actually do it again, but that's okay.
13: I can't we'll, know that they we'll took it on. We'll, we'll
3: keep
14: moving, we'll keep moving, we uh,
13: so, um, then I said these really wonky things a minute ago. I said we're going to give you target peak hour trips by mode, by corridor, and representative scale of investment. Um, it, I think it's a small but helpful compass for the city as we try to plan for our future. And so we're hoping that this this target of how many people we need to accommodate will feed into these different efforts that are now being teed up to actually turn ideas into projects, which is what everyone wants to see. At the same time, we need to find the money for those projects, and that's where this representative scale of investment feeds into um, the next update to the regional transportation plan, which is just now getting underway and will be approved in 2017, will be um, modifying and updating our San Francisco transportation plan to track with that. Um, so then we get defined projects, investment priorities and funding commitments and hopefully then a d- delivered projects and policies in a better functioning, safer and more sustainable transportation network, while I'm still
10: alive I hope. That's it. Thank Me you. Me too. <laughs> thank you, Ms. Bryson. Um, and thank you for the presentation on some of the larger context of the work that we can do. Um, don't block the box being just one piece of addressing congestion and gridlock um, in this part of the city. And I also appreciate um, you working so hard to um, have it the community meeting before the holidays get started, um, because we know that our residents often have a hard time making it to meetings after Thanksgiving um, until January, and so we know that it'll be, just be some of the preliminary um, results, but allowing us to have a dialogue with residents and then having a fuller um, conversation um, next year, um, early next year on all of the completed Uh, work. So um, at this time, um, through the chair, I'd like to request that we open up for public comment. I know we have a number of folks here um, who will be speaking um, and have been waiting and I want to save my comments and questions until after public comment.
0: Thank you. Uh, We will now open item number two up for public comment. Public comment will be two minutes. I have two public comment speaker cards. I'm sorry, sir, I haven't called uh, Let me call the cards (laughs) and then um, Alice Rogers and William Jenneke, Jenneke, you can come forward. And we have blue cards up in the front, if anyone would like to fill them out. Ms. Rogers,
15: Good afternoon, Supervisors. Thank you so much for um, bringing this issue uh, forward. Um, I'm Alice Rogers. Um, I'm Vice President of the South Beach Rincon Mission Bay Neighborhood Association. Um, I'm a 20-year resident on South Park, and I'm also a member of the D6 Pedestrian Safety um, Committee and SF. Um Again, thank you and also um, our city departments, uh, MTA and CTA, uh, for bringing this safety and congestion issue forward. Our Neighborhood Association supports and has actively worked with Supervisors Kim's office and the city department's um, to see effective don't-block-the-box policies implemented, um, and we ask you now to uh, support this measure. Our neighborhoods are the city's primary interface with re- regional transportation. Our neighborhoods' streets are congested, as you have heard, um, beyond capacity with commuter um, traffic funneling onto the bridge, and our health and safety is imperiled. The city is more than a decade behind in providing even baseline infrastructure that's adequate to serve our existing transportation conditions. Um, never mind the daily uh, density increases. Don't block the box is the first solid, proactive step the city um, stands to take to recognize and begin to um, address these conditions on the street. Our neighborhood literally walks the talk. In a recent survey, SFMTA found that 50% of us walk to work. These aren't our cars. These are commuter cars. Please manage this change. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. Next speaker.
8: Supervisors, my name is Bill Janicki. I live at the uh, Metropolitan. Uh, we're a 345-unit um, condominium. I'm right at the epicenter of this gridlock problem on the block the box that we're talking about. Uh, geographically, we're halfway up the hill on First between Folsom and Harrison. Uh, the uh, uh, this box is a convergence of arteries that are coming all the way up uh, first from Howard and beyond Howard and, uh, and uh, Folsom. I personally get a worm's eye view of the problem in the middle of the afternoon starting around 4 o'clock and running through 6.30 because I do shopping uh, down at Safeway on Townsend and, and 4th. And it can take me a half an hour to 45 minutes just to go that distance, uh, which is not much more than a mile, I don't think. The, um, we have uh, made three recommendations uh, for the uh, committee to consider, uh, and they have been submitted uh, over the weekend for your review and the review of your staff. Uh, and talk, they talk about re-engineering the lanes, on uh, Folsom <laughs> and uh, uh, those that re-engineering we would very much like to work with the traffic department of the city to give them our advice uh, they're the professionals but we're the ones who have to live with the, the situation I want to make one other uh, comment about police officers versus TCOs. TCOs are good they add a lot to it but there's nothing like a cop on the corner with a gun to introduce a concern. Uh, So my time is up. Uh, If I could have 10 seconds more. Sure, Uh, go ahead. uh, We had a good experience as Supervisor Kim knows uh, with the media uh, on our problem uh, with uh, noise uh, mitigation uh, from all the construction going on around the metropolitan. And we appeared on uh, uh, Channel 4, K-R-O-N, 11 p.m. news. And that got a lot of people's attention and had a very uh, therapeutic effect. So I think it would be helpful to the extent you can draw the media into this discussion. You'll get public support that will be greater than otherwise would be the case. Um, I want to say one other thing. I come from New York City, and we had a... (laughs) don't block the box program under Mayor Koch, who was, you probably have read about him, he was a no-nonsense mayor. And that uh, was implemented in the major intersections in Midtown Manhattan with a full-time, usually from about 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., a police officer uh, participating in Don't Block the Box. So you got a ticket and somebody said before, I think, 90 dollars. I remember a 100 in 1980 dollars, which is probably 200 dollars today, uh, for uh, violators. Uh, we would bottom line, we would encourage you to uh, ask the traffic department to work with us and allow us to give them our uh, you know, first-line worm's-eye view of what's really going on. We have a lot to say, and it may be useful in in some cases. So thank you for the opportunity to talk to you.
0: Thank you very much. Um, I'm going to call additional public comment cards. Nicole Schneider, uh, Sianda Conley. I'm sorry if I didn't pronounce it correctly. Uh, Carol uh, Thistlethwaite, Debbie Gold, Katie Liddell, uh, Bruce Aguid, Rick Smith.
4: Good afternoon, supervisors. I'm Nicole Schneider. I'm the executive director of Walk San Francisco, and thank you for your time this afternoon. Um, I'm here to support making the Don't Block the Box program, pilot program, a more permanent program. Um, Definitely support doing this regularly on Thursday and Friday afternoons. Um, This is not only about improving pedestrian safety, it's about improving everyone's safety on our roadways. and I think you know, giving people fines um, when they're making, creating unsafe conditions for people who walk um, and bike and, and take transit in our city um, is actually a really great way of educating the community of what's safe. Um, I also think this is a really important measure in terms of protecting pedestrians' rights. Um, we have a right to walk in the crosswalk all people have the right to walk in a safe crosswalk, um, and we should support that. So I encourage this pilot program um, for that reason as well. Um, finally, I really appreciated Liz's presentation about the more systemic issues around congestion in SOMA, and um, encourage the board to continue to look at um, congestion pricing and other strategies that have already been um, analyzed and are on the table, and um, really inc- Encourage the board to also push for those measures to move forward as quickly as possible. It's really um, a dangerous situation right now in SOMA, as we all know, and we need to take fast action before we lose additional people to traffic. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. Next speaker.
1: Good afternoon. My name is Sienda Conley. Um, I'm here supporting Don't Block the Box, but I'm also asking that you guys take under your radar Fifth and Harrison As you know, we have two schools in that neighborhood and also a preschool. Um, We just recently had a young boy from Bessie Carl Michael School hit by a car, and the car kept going. We have no one watching the middle school kids as they cross that street. The cars speed through the intersection coming off of the freeway. So one of my main purposes for coming to this meeting today was to ask that you guys keep Fifth and Harrison up under your radar so the children can go to and
14: from school safely. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. Next speaker.
14: Hi, I'm Carol Thisselwhite. I'm a member of the Homeowners Association at 355 Bryant Street, which is at the corner of 2nd and Bryant, so we're kind of ground zero for traffic trying to get onto the bridge. Um, My story is like a lot of the stories of the people that live in my building. We've sold our ancestral home, we've moved to the city, bought a condo in a neighborhood that we hope that we can walk and bicycle and drive once in a while in and have a simpler life. And, you know... I have a window right on Bryant Street, and sometimes it's 11 o'clock at night, and I've still got cars honking their horns trying to get onto the bridge. Uh, but the, really the worst thing is when I try to cross the street, and it's full of cars, and it's full of angry people who don't want to budge an inch. So that's not part of the story that I sold my home for and bought into living in downtown San Francisco. So I hope we can all do something about it. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. Next speaker.
16: Hi, my name is Debbie Gould. I live at Harrison in Maine. I want to thank Supervisor Kim for bringing this don't block the box uh, to the forefront. Uh, it was my neighbor and friend uh, who was killed at the corner of Harrison in Maine by an 18-wheeler uh, in December of 2004. Uh, it's amazing how you don't think about stepping forward and talking about problems in the city or anywhere for that matter until something happens to you personally I'm already getting weepy about it I haven't thought about it for 10 years but I'm hoping that we can have a PCO at the corner of Harrison and Maine uh, permanently Uh, hopefully there won't be any other residents of San Francisco whether it be in district 6 District 10. Uh, Supervisor Weiner, I'm not sure exactly which uh, district you represent, but District 8. District 8. No district in San Francisco should have to uh, deal with pedestrian or cyclist fatalities at
17: all. So thank you, Supervisor Kim.
0: Thank you. Next speaker.
17: Good afternoon. My name is Katie Liddell, and I'm the president of the South Beach Rincon Mission Bay Neighborhood Association. I'm also a former co-chair of PSAC, a former board member of Walk San Francisco, and a member of Supervisor uh, Kim's District 6 uh, Pedestrian Safety Committee. So my neighbor, Debbie Gould, who just spoke, she and Supervisor Kim kind of Took my story, um, uh, some of my story away from me because, uh, and thank you for that, because Debbie and I actually met when um, our neighbor was killed in December of t- uh, 2004. We met and we got other neighbors together and we actually put uh, a demonstration together at the intersection with the blessing of the police to me- memorialize uh, Beverly Keys. So timeline, um, yeah, ever since then, that's when I first got involved with pedestrian safety. I met Debbie. Over the years, we have filed petitions. We have met here at City Hall. We've met with the MTA. We've met with the Department of Public Health. We have put in so much effort over the years, and we still need help. Um, I also would just like to say that, um, I, well, first of all, I'd like to thank Erin Miller and Peter Albert, Liz Bryson, uh, Sam and Kami. All these people are really great to work with, um, and I appreciate the fact that they're beginning to do something. So, um, and I also want to agree with uh, Miss Bryson's comment that this is just one piece of a whole puzzle, but we have to start somewhere. Let's start knocking off some of these smaller doable projects and this is one of them. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much. Next speaker.
18: Good afternoon, Uh, my name is Bruce Hagin. I'm a board member and transportation rep for the South Beach, Rincon Hill, Mission Bay Neighborhood Association and the vice chair of the TJPACAC. Uh, in November 2013, our Neighborhood, Neighborhood Association Board brought forward a set of transportation issues and recommendations. One issue is tra- traffic congestion and flow management. Significant traffic congestion and public safety issues exist today, as we all heard, uh, in and around the Bay Bridge and freeway on and off ramps, uh, specifically during the commute hours, whether or not there's an event at at and Park. The public safety issues have been well documented in the June 2011 Streets blog and August 2012 Bay Citizens articles, as well as a segment just recently done September 2014 by Cron titled, People Behaving Badly. The situation is getting worse. There are more residents living and working in the Transbay-Rincon Hill area every day, and we could just count the cranes. Uh, gridlock is common. The commute and event traffic backups can extend for hours, and not only does this create frustration of drivers and impact the flow flow of traffic. More importantly, as everyone said today, it impacts pedestrian and bike safety and is a significant contributing factor to poor on-time transit service performance. Our recommendations in in November 2013 were twofold, uh, one of which is to staff the key intersections with traffic and parking control officers. We appreciate the work done through the WTA and for the Don't Block the Box pilot, in addition to the more comprehensive discussion just led by Liz Bryson. The pilot is complete. The results are straightforward. Traffic traffic professionals providing direction at intersections Keep the intersections clear, pedestrian safe, improves bike safety, improves transit performance, and minimizes driver's frustrations. With that said, I encourage you to implement with a sense of urgency. We are not talking about capital infrastructure investment. These are operations and expense dollars. Let's not uh, wait for a serious injury or another pedestrian fatality to drive the decision to implement. Let's prioritize this and move it forward now. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much. Next speaker.
18: Thank you, Chair Weiner, Supervisor Cohen, and Supervisor
6: Kim. Um, my name is Rick Smith. I'm a District 6 rep- uh, resident at uh, 3rd in Mission, and uh, this was likely the first uh, topic I talked with you after you were elected. Um, the, the north side of Mission Crossing 3rd collides convention and resident pedestrian flow with uh, cars backed up from market into Mission blocking the box for both the pedestrians and the cars. And I'm here for two things, one, to really support this program that is being done for uh, Bryant and Second and Maine and Harrison, and also to get a red dot on third admission on the MTA map. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. Next speaker. And also, oh, go ahead.
19: Hello. I'm Jan Duffy. I'm both a resident and a business owner, separate units at 355 Bryant. Um, I want to do several things here today. One is, of course, to absolutely support everything that has been said, in particular, the sense of urgency. This is a terrible situation in every possible way. I've occasionally stopped to take photographs of people guiding small children in between cars that are bumper to bumper, angry drivers involved. And it it is a terribly dangerous situation. So my main point is please have the sense of urgency that those of us who live there feel. I also want to add one other thing and that is this is actually a business issue too. I cannot schedule any appointments at my office um, after about 3 o'clock because we get the particular blocking um, at 3.30. Um, but it starts again, and that really basically wipes out the whole last part of the day. It's very difficult for me to schedule appointments for myself if I would have to drive. So it's a revenue issue. Uh, I realize that's not as urgent as some of the other things, but I wanted people to understand that issue, too. This is really um, affecting so many aspects. And most important, I guess I want to underscore what was said previously, that is that this is not a major um, infrastructure um, investment requirement. It's really just getting some enforcement because the block the box is the issue that makes everyone angry and therefore dangerous. So, thank you.
5: Thank you very much. Next speaker. Uh, thank you, Mr. President. We have to speak about a positive aspect. Of every issue, not anything. Uh, I mean, personal emotion. Okay, first, first of all. Uh, any giant uh, business, I mean, a uh, corporation, uh, is done with, uh, a good purpose, good purpose. As I say, upon the existence of such a heavenly plan of uh, mathematical calculation, existing uh, over uh, uh, a person, maybe a good pathway, then to govern land in response to such a, uh, a heavenly plan. And human civilization does in progress, step by step. One step, one, one plan of mathematics. So, with self direction and upon one's uh, uh, deep insight, contemplation, reasoning, uh, wisdom, uh, knowing the true, true pathway, one's true uh, mission, and then uh, each single like a Microsoft, Apple, all this uh, giant business uh, progress, but it never may happen repeatedly for the same same aspect. Uh, see, always a t- for the time of trend, in time of chance in chances, the flow of the chances in the. So, it's a new, new aspect, new way for uh, having new business, new direction. Not necessarily repeating what happened in historical uh, uh, tradition just uh, like 10 years ago. It's so always new, something's new. So, uh, we can choose lots of new phenomena for every year, for this to the, maybe next year. No, to, this, this is 2014, this is 2015.
0: Is there any additional public comment on item number two? Seeing none, public comment is closed. Supervisor Kim.
10: Thank you, um, committee. And I, I want to thank all of our residents um, for coming out to speak on this issue. And I also want to really recognize um, that this pilot was really pushed for um, by our residents. I know Rick had mentioned it but it was one of the first issues that he and other Yerba Buena residents talked to me about when I came into office and it was one of the first um, initiatives that I got many emails about from South Beach and Rincon Hill residents. So this idea came from the neighborhood, it came from the community and our office has really been working with our residents and MTA um, to make it a reality um, in our neighborhood. Um, I think three years ago even then we, when we were kind of at the bottom of a recession it was hard for any of us to even anticipate Um, the incredible economic growth that the city has seen over the last two and a half years. Um, And while it is incredibly welcome and it's great to see people back at work and it's great to see all of our uh, residential and office developments um, now finally coming back into place um, and getting constructed, um, what we're experiencing now is, is incredible gridlock, way more than I think any of us had anticipated, even more than the dot-com boom of 14 years ago. Um, and what we see in the south of market is, is really incredible. On the few nights I actually even make it to my home um, on a rush hour evening on Folsom Street, I'm astounded um, by the number of cars. And my experience as a pedestrian is incredibly um, intimidating um, because you see cars in the crosswalk and the intersection. And, and of course, they're, they're tired and impatient, too, and tired of waiting as well. So they're constantly moving every inch that they can. And so seeing cyclists and kids and seniors trying to maneuver their way, often dangerously, into the intersection to get out of the way of these cars um, is very scary, and it's been very scary for me as well. Um, I just had... Um, two or three questions that I wanted to ask but I want to get public comment going first and this was specifically to SFMTA, um, either to Peter and Aaron. And so I, I guess now that we've gathered the data of the pilot um, and we've seen some of the data in terms of number of cars and also the effectiveness of having PCO um, enforcement, either doing the hand signaling or the citation work, I guess what are the next steps for SFMTA to make this pilot permanent? Or, or Cameron, I, whoever wants to come up Thank you. <laughs> from SFMTA. I mean, I, I think our residents just want to know, like, this work has been great. Absolutely. We were so excited about the pilot, and now we want to just see it become permanent. And what are the next steps to get there?
20: Thank you, Supervisor. Peter Albert from MTA, and I work closely with Cameron, Liz, and Aaron Uh, There were some recommendations that came out of the pilot that Aaron put up on the screen in camera, and you can certainly add to that. But I do like to go back to the value of this waterfront assessment. A lot of what Liz has shown us is you can't take the pilot, as I think Katie Liddell said really well, it's one piece of a puzzle, but these puzzle pieces all interlock. So when we're looking at the recommendations that might come out of it in camera, you would probably like to come up and talk about the logistics of making the pilot a permanent uh, project. What we also want to see is how do we take that point where we are today and look at this future, these ways of development, look at the, the transportation, um, multimodal transportation incentives, I have a lot of confidence in the TDM part of it. If we talked about the three E's, the engineering, the education, and the enforcement, TDM, transportation demand management, is where you really can make a lot of headway in education. Uh, we work closely with Carly Payne from our office. She's right now with the planning department trying to codify regular transportation demand management measures that help people understand what the laws are, what the benefits are of using alternative modes, and how to behave in a civil way, whether they're driving or walking or bicycling. So I think, I'll, I'll defer to Cameron on the enforcement uh, next steps, but I do want to make a plug for transportation demand management, where we reach out to the employers, we reach out to the giants and the warriors as they have fans who come in and, into the same area, That's a great opportunity to pitch education and awareness that helps all of this come together. So with that.
10: Thank you, Mr. Albert. And I I don't want to take away from the larger work. I think Don't don't Block the Box is only one piece. Um, of the larger vision we have for the neighborhood, and it clearly only focuses on the enforcement and then hence the education piece because you 're getting a ticket um, for this behavior that we don 't want to encourage here in the south of market and and I absolutely support the longer study. Um, I actually do support congestion <laughs> management. Um, uh, congestion pricing um, in the downtown area. And I'd love to do some work with our major employers so that they can start to pilot some of that as well. But in the meantime, I don't want to have more studies to make just this portion of, um, of the work that our residents have initiated permanent. And so I want to see what steps we can do to make this permanent while we continue to do all the other amazing work to make um, SOMA flow better.
12: So, hi again. I'd, you know, I, what I'd like to do is to start, as I, we outlined in the uh, presentation, is initially provide six PCOs, up to six PCOs, um, uh, going to, our first identifying which locations and agreeing to which locations we want to tackle first. I really believe that education, again, the three E's, we talked about that. I'd like to see us start with some education, some outreach, to make sure that everybody understands what the rules are. Um, after that, do another assessment with engineering to make sure that we have the proper signage, striping, whatever it takes, and then bring on the enforcement. And I'm, I'm proposing we do that, bring on the enforcement around December, December 1st even. Okay. Uh, we'll start it off again with the, the intersections that we've identified, and begin to make different uh, sweeps of different intersections. Uh, whether it's two PCOs at an intersection, uh, over three intersections, um, doing various uh, active uh, enforcement that includes uh, citation issuance.
4: Yeah, I have a quick Supervisor question, Supervisor
3: Thank you. I have a quick question. So. If you take six PCOs and you cover them in the south of market, that Mm -hmm. leaves us vulnerable someplace else. So how how do you balance this out?
12: Well, true, we're we're always struggling to prioritize PCO staff and during those times, I've looked at those and I've done a pretty exhaustive look at what I'd be taking away. We're sort of taking it back a step. We're actually going through a, as a result of the July 2012 audit, looking at optimizing our PCO beats, PCO beats and PCOs, staffing. And rather than just saying I need more PCOs, I'd like to be able to evaluate my current staff how we utilize them whether it's general enforcement whether it's street cleaning whether it's 58788. those are driveway complaint details or, or double parking or and double parking and just to go on that point i actually did create a saturation team oh it's been uh almost six months now and we have i think we've done pretty good in certain areas but what takes away from it is something else like um shuttle programs but not to say that we can't balance those resources. We actually added 10 new resources to satisfy, satisfy that. So um, I think that we, we are going to and will continue and hopefully by Q1, we'll have a, a, a better assessment of what our resources are, what our resource needs are, and how we allocate them among the, the various uh, details. Supervisor Kim.
10: Thank you. Okay. Um, I know that this is an impression that many residents have and certainly one that I have but it seems like SFMTA doesn't have any trouble citing parking tickets in every neighborhood in the city on any given day at any given time so I think it's really hard for a lot of our residents to accept the fact that this is um, a real capacity issue to have more PCO operators giving out don't block the box tickets and double parking um, tickets in the south of market area and um, just as you know we we almost immediately get a parking ticket at the me- the moment our meters go out I think we'd like to have that same level of responsiveness um, around this important issue and I I imagine PCO operators will be so much more popular if they're giving out these tickets versus the other ones that being said um, I I just really want to encourage us moving forward I you know December is not too late when you had first started talking about how we need to do more education work and better signage I was really worried that you're talking about months from now December is fine um, but I don't often see us stopping ourselves with parking meters, which I also think we need to do more education and have better signage for. Because the complaint I get the most often is that people have a difficult time understanding which meters are doing what and what times they are. Um, so I hope we can move with the same speed um, around don't b- block the box as we do with parking meter. Enforcement. Yeah, I agree. I think, and, and that
12: issue has been raised. The uh, meter folks, that's not my area, unfortunately, are working on making sure that we get the signage or stickers or information mm-hmm. correct. I mean, Sunday enforcement changed a lot of things for folks, too, and uh, we're sort of reeling for that. We often don't things do, do things in, in a timely fashion, but we're working towards that end.
10: I, I just have one more question, I, not, mm-hmm. and, then, and, and then one last question for MTA. Um, you had mentioned that um, the commuter shuttle Mm program is taking away um, PCO um, officers. But my understanding from when the pilot was first introduced to our office was that it's fully cost recovered. That the $1 per stop was going to fully recover all the costs of that program. So we shouldn't be using existing PCO operators for that program. that program should be fully funding right. its own op, you know, enforcement and, and, officers. And I didn't,
12: I didn't, let me correct that. Yeah, I didn't mean to say that we're pulling those people away from, it is fully funded through the okay. permit process. Um, it, just, it just takes a lot of time to do any of these types. It changes what we do. It adds more resources to a detail that we didn't anticipate. So, to shift the existing ones, we actually funded the 10 PCOs to do the detail. Mm-hmm. They get They're only doing um, that detail, the a.m. peak and the p.m. peak. So, it splits their time and then we have to fill in the afternoon. So, it's really that filling in the afternoon of their time which complicates things for us. It makes a gap Mm
4: -hmm. that we have
12: to fill. If, If everything was equal across the board, you know, meter times were all the same, if RPP areas were all the same, enforcement would be a lot easier and it would be a lot easier to move people around. But when we start splitting things up, it just adds holes in our ability to manage the people. That's all is what I meant to say. I'm sorry.
10: Thank you. you And then I just have one final question. I'm not sure if it's to you, Cameron, or to another member of SFMTA. But I know that um, I've been talking at length with um, Ed Riskin. Um, about camera enforcement to augment the work that PCO operators and SFPD officers do. So we have already enforcement cameras that ticket for, um, those that run red lights, right. um, throughout the city. And it's, it seems to make sense that those same cameras could also catch people who are blocking the box because they're not even speeding through the red light. They're just stuck in the intersection. And Correct. that we should be able to photograph their license plate and, and send them a ticket, um, to kind of help augment um, kind of the limited human resources that we have in both agencies. I know that we made a request to Attorney General Kamala Harris um, back in June. I was just wondering um, where we're at on that process and kind of when we hope to hear back an answer on this issue. And I know that we have to get permission from the state before we can do it. Um, but I was just curious where we we're at in that process.
11: Well, I will. I will um, give you as best an answer as I can. I haven't been involved in that work. Kate Breen, who you may know, mm-hmm. um, has been watching over that. Um, all we know at this point is that we are waiting for a decision from the attorney general. Uh, and if the decision comes in favor of ESSA, of the San Francisco being able to. Um, Allow uh, don't block the box enforcement or red light enforcement. All we have to do is get the cameras hooked up. However, if it doesn't come back in favor of that, then we would have to initiate some type of legislative process.
10: That I don't know exactly what that is. Okay, so that's thank the you. Best I can give. No, 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 I appreciate the answer. I know that um, that we were successful, and I believe Supervisor Weiner worked on this on the right turn
4: mm-hmm. um,
10: prohibiting right turn cameras at um, Octavia. Mm-hmm Mm freeway. And we were able to get Attorney um, General Kamala Harris to um, support that. And so I encourage our residents to write her office as well to um, make sure that we get that decision expedited and, you know, that this is something that we really need to make our neighborhoods safer. That would probably help us too. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs)
0: Great. Thank you, Supervisor Kimman. Thank you again for calling for this hearing. And um, I'm really um, glad to hear that there is a proactive approach moving forward. And uh, I will say also that uh, uh, in terms of double parking and the saturation, we will be reconvening that hearing early in the new year, just on the one year anniversary, so we can compare stats over the last year from what we had received uh, a year ago to see um, what the progress has been, so I'm going to eagerly await uh, that data. Um, and, you know, I want to also just uh, uh, reiterate what a statement that Supervisor Kim made about comparing today to the dot-com boom and having gone through the dot-com boom, as a lot of us did. Um, we, I think for many different, in many different areas, housing and traffic and other areas, we all thought it can't possibly get worse uh, than it was, say, in 1999 or 2000 in terms of, in terms of evictions, in terms of uh, traffic congestion, uh, in terms of pedestrian collisions, and lo and behold, here we are and uh, unlike in dot uh, com you know this isn 't like a pets dot com era this is you know whatever happens with the ups and downs of the economy we 're on a different trajectory in San Francisco as are a lot of cities in terms of all of everyone. Uh, understanding what we all know that cities are amazing places, and San Francisco, uh, first and foremost. And so, uh, we're going to continue to grow. We're going to grow by another one hundred and fifty thousand people between now and uh, two thousand uh, and forty. Uh, and we, and now is the time. Whether it's improving Muni, whether it's uh, getting our heads around uh, the, this kind of enforcement for uh, traffic management, uh, we need to be making those decisions uh, and implementing those fixes now and the the gridlock that we see uh south of market and south of market is definitely just the most extreme in so many different ways and i look forward to some road changes down there to try to slow down the traffic and make it more livable it's going to spread in supervisor cohen's district just tens of thousands of units coming online uh, in the western, you know, Park Merced, 5,000 more units, more stuff happening on upper market. In the mission, this is we're, we're growing and, and our transportation system in all of its forms including these kinds of enforcement uh, techniques have to grow along with that or it's going to get worse. But I know we can. this is a can-do kind of city so I know we're going to get it done. Uh, So uh, if there are no additional comments, Supervisor Kim?
10: I I just forgot to, um, again, thank our residents for all of their work um, with our departments and our city agencies and also SFMTA and TA for your work. I really look forward to making this a permanent um, program in the south of Market. And I also forgot to recognize um, Assemblyman um, Filting, who is actually also pushing in Sacramento. He's also personally written a letter um, to our Deputy Attorney General um, to make a decision as quickly as possible on uh, allowing San Francisco to do don't block the box cameras and we'll share um, that information with all of our residents um, so that you know, we can continue to write more letters and emails. So um, thank you committee and thank you to um, everyone that's been involved.
0: Great, thank <coughs> you. Supervisor Kim, would you like to file this hearing or continue it to the call of the chair? Um, to file okay. Uh, so Supervisor Kim has made a motion to file item number two and we'll take that without objection. <coughs> Madam Clerk, is there any additional business before the committee?
1: There's no further business.
0: And we're adjourned.